Welcome back to our study of St. John Chrysostom's homilies in this collection called On Marriage and Family Life. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, we left off on page 36, and we are still in this first of the homilies, homily 19, which is on 1 Corinthians 7. And one of the things we have been talking about is a theology that is, as Lutherans, tends to come to us from Martin Luther's On Christian Freedom, the concept that, or the paradoxical concept, that a Christian is most free, Lord of all, and subject to none, and is also, at the same time, most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. And in this vein, we see, we see that this teaching, in one form or another, can be traced all the way back to Chrysostom, if not before. And here he expresses, he expresses it on page 36 in the context of a slave. Very controversial in our day and age, but in the context of slavery. He says, he asks this question, how can a slave be simultaneously enslaved and free? This is about five or six lines into the paragraph. And the answer Chrysostom gives is this, when he does everything for God's sake. That's the key. When he does everything for God's sake. So whatever your external vocation or vocations may be, even if that's something like slavery. The internal reality is that in all these things, you're serving not man, but God. And that is the most wonderfully freeing. So you are both enslaved and free, to use the term, the terms that Chrysostom gives us. But that is the most wonderfully freeing thing. And can in and of itself shine profound light into the darkest of vocational circumstances because you simply realize I'm not serving that person as such. I am serving God and the shape and form that that takes is faithful service to my neighbor. Even in an arrangement so painful as the relationship between a slave and a master, for example. So really rather profound and we'll simply pick up here. We'll simply pick up here in the middle of the paragraph about where we about where we just left off with this idea from Chrysostom, six or so lines down. A man can be both enslaved and free when he does everything for God's sake, deceives no one, and doesn't shirk the work assigned to him. That is how someone held in bondage to another can be free. And how can a free man become a slave when he serves other men whose goals are evil? 
whether they are gluttony or the lust for riches or political power. Such a person, even though he is free, is more a slave than any man. Remember when Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you will, be, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I'm paraphrasing here, but the response he received was, we are sons of Abraham. We've never been enslaved by anyone. And I think that sentiment is alive and, and well here in America, albeit in a very different way, that we are, we are free. This is the land of the free and the home of the brave. Well, <laughs> that illusion may be coming to an end sooner than later. We'll see. But uh, this idea of freedom so that we would all sort of, as, as red-blooded Americans, beat our breast and say, we are free. And yet, how then does Chrysostom point out that, that even as free men, perhaps the freest in the world, we might still be in, in, in fact enslaved and more profoundly enslaved. And here he gives some examples, serving men whose goals are evil. whether they are gluttony or the lust for riches or political power. Such a person, even though he is free, is more a slave than any man. Chrysostom continues, Consider the examples of Joseph and his master's wife. This is such a great treatment. Joseph was a slave, but not a slave to men, so that even in slavery he was more free than all free men. He didn't yield to the woman. He wouldn't submit to her wishes. On the other hand, she was free, but no woman ever acted more like a slave, begging and fawning over her own servant, but she didn't succeed. Joseph was free, and he wouldn't do what she wanted. This is not slavery, but freedom of the highest kind. So, uh... Maybe put your finger right there on, on the next line, because we'll pick up there in a minute. It's in the middle of the paragraph. But put your finger on the line, did Joseph's condition. So this, this actually introduces an all-important point for us, I think, as, Lutheran, as Lutherans, especially in the 21st century, where Lutheranism has in some ways gone off track, particularly when you think about radical Lutheranism, and usually the centerpiece of radical Lutheranism is a kind of freedom. Freedom from the law, to be a little more precise. But when you're free from the law, uh, what, what are you freed into? And the answer is, well, you can do whatever you want to do. Isn't that precisely what the old Adam does? <laughs> Doesn't he already do what he wants to do? Now you've been freed in the gospel and, and there's no other shape or form given to it other than you've been freed to do whatever you want to do. And, and here we see the problem. I mean, is uh, particularly here in this context, you see Potiphar's wife as being utterly free. She can do whatever she wants to do. And yet she is bound to her sinful will. And Joseph, Joseph, paradoxically, has all the external slavery, but he is free. Now, in what sense is he free? Is the freedom biblically construed as, or here construed by Chrysostom, to be a freedom to do whatever he wants to do? No, his freedom is precisely defined as being bound to the will of God. 
so not to put too fine of a point on it, but this is precisely Luther's point in the bondage of the will, that the will is either bound to God or bound to self, bound to God or bound to the devil. And so then freedom has to be defined not as a freedom of self or self-expression, but rather as a freedom in which one conforms himself to the will of God. So this is precisely what our, our Lutheran fathers and our Lutheran confessions teach. And it's why we must be very careful when we articulate freedom uh, or the gospel as freedom. When we just say that ham-fistedly to people, we give them the impression of Christ has died for all your sins, past, present, and future, so you are free. What's the implication? To do whatever you want. The problem is find one passage in all the scriptures that suggests this. Find one passage in all the Lutheran confessions that suggests this. And if you can't find it in either of those two sources, it isn't genuine Lutheranism. All right. Back to Chrysostom, back to the text. Did Joseph's condition of slavery prevent him from practicing virtue in any way? Pay attention to me, both freemen and slaves. Which of these two was really the slave? Joseph, who resisted temptation and ignored her advances? Or his master's wife, who tried to seduce him? God has set limits to the obedience a slave owes his master. He has commanded when one should obey and when one should not. When your master doesn't order you to do something displeasing to God, it is right to obey him. But your obligation goes no further. That is how a slave is really free. But if you transgress God's law, you become a slave even if you appear to be free. This is what Paul means when he says, do not become slaves of men. What else could he mean? If he is urging slaves to abandon their masters and fight for freedom, why does he say, in whatever state each was called, there let him remain with God? Verse 24. In another place, he says, let all who are under the yoke of slavery regard their masters as worthy of all honor. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brethren. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their service are believers and beloved. In the epistles to the Ephesians and the Colossians, he commands the same. So it is obvious that Paul's intention is not to abolish slavery as a social institution. Rather, he attacks slavery in its worst form, the slavery to evil, which pays no respect to any external freedom. Those are profound lines. Because in America, the gospel has largely been replaced with a social gospel and a gospel of liberation. But what's in view here is nothing more than a liberation from societal constructs. Is that at all what Paul is teaching, what the New Testament is teaching? No, the societal constructs will come and go. 
according to temporal circumstances and history, but they will permanently go. They will permanently be put away forever in the new heavens and the new earth. The gospel does not solve these things. Rather, the gospel attacks that which is much more profoundly deep in us. The gospel sets us free from slavery to evil. From slavery to evil, our, our allegiance then is to God, not to what is evil. So, you know, and abolishing slavery as a social institution is also much more easily said than done. I mean, I mean to, to do no, no comparison that diminishes the suffering that people undergo in different forms of slavery throughout the world and throughout history. But once again, sort of the American delusion that we're all these perfectly free men running around autonomously simply isn't true in many respects. And in many respects, our gigantic mortgages hanging over our heads, uh, the quote-unquote house we beat our chest and say we own, really belongs to the bank. Even after it's all paid off, <clears throat> if you think that property under your feet belongs to you, try not paying your property taxes and see what happens. <laughs> so, so we ought to be real, real skeptical of, of just how free we actually think we are even within our given society. You know? And increasingly so. We're free men, so we will turn on the internet and, and receive... Uh, or, or our cable TV stations and receive nothing but, you know, objective uh, truth, facts, right? No, as we've seen in the past weeks, what we are being fed is precisely what the people in power want us to be fed. And so our, even our information is limited. So in what sense are we free? I mean, we may be ignorant of the alternative even if they keep us ignorant. And so there's no freedom there. So again, we need, to be, we need to be very... The institution of slavery takes on many, many, many forms throughout history. And it continues in the world today to take many forms. The gospel is not here to eradicate all of that. When Christ returns, he will eradicate all of that. The gospel is here to give us a deeper freedom so that even in society's confines, whatever that society may be, whether it's here in the West or over in the East... Um, we can be free from evil, free from sin, free from passions, free from the guilt of our sins, free from death, all in Christ Jesus, who wins all of this for us by his blood. So this is a profound couple of lines here um, by Chrysostom. It is obvious that Paul's intention is not to abolish slavery as a social institution. Rather, he attacks slavery in its worst form, the slavery to evil, which pays no respect to any external freedom. Joseph's brothers all had their freedom while he was a slave in Egypt, but what good did it do them? Were they not in greater bondage than any slave? They lied to their father. They sold their brother to the traders under false pretenses. But Joseph was truly free wherever, or excuse me, free everywhere, and in every situation. Freedom is most radiant when it shines through bondage. Can you see why they called him the golden-mouthed 
<laughs> That's such a great line. That should be embroidered on our pillows. Freedom is most radiant when it shines through bondage. That's the essence of what it means to be a Christian. We are, we are yet, in a sense, uh, the old Adam is attached to us. And the freedom we have to obey Christ now shines forth through that, puts, puts the old man that remains in us to death, daily drowns him in the language of Luther, crucifies him in the language of Paul. This is our freedom. It's a freedom against sin. It's a freedom from sin and its consequences. Whereas before we had no choice but to obey sin. There was no alternative. So the true exercise of freedom is to not sin. But what is sin? Well, St. John tells us in his first epistle that, that sin is anomia, lawlessness. So if we have a freedom from sin, from anomia, from lawlessness, then that freedom looks like lawfulness, righteousness, the eternal will of God. Freedom is most radiant when it shines through bondage. And that's the hidden glory of our world. It's the hidden glory of the cross. Where does the light of Christ shine brightest of all? On a cross. Where he is perfectly free and obedient to the Father. Even though his reputation is being trashed. Even though he is being condemned as a criminal in the, in the civil justice system. Even though all the, the religious authorities condemn him and his enemies accuse him and apparently triumph over him, he is utterly unconcerned because he's a truly free man, free to be obedient to his Father. And so his freedom shines most radiant on the cross just as our freedom is most radiant when it shines through bondage. All right. Any thoughts or questions you have before we continue to march along here in homily 19, which is uh, sadly coming to a close here in short order. <clears throat> All right, seeing none, <clears throat> we will simply move on. Bottom of page 37, such is the nature of Christianity. Even in slavery, it bestows freedom. If someone claimed to have an immortal body, he would have to prove his claim by being shot with an arrow and suffering no harm. Likewise, a man shows he is truly free when his spirit remains unfettered, even though he is subject to masters. That is why St. Paul advises such a person to remain a slave. And if it is impossible for a slave to be a good Christian, then the pagans will conclude that our religion is very weak. But if we can convince them that slavery is no impediment to holiness, they will be amazed at our doctrine. We are not harmed by chains or flogging or death itself. How then can slavery hurt us? The faithful have endured fire, sword, innumerable tortures, anguish, poverty, wild beasts, and countless sufferings, even worse than these, without injury. Yes, they have even been strengthened by them. How can slavery hurt them? It is not slavery that injures us, beloved, 
The real slavery is slavery to sin. Very well said. Very well said. And that's where you look around the, you know, at the, your average Orange County Californian. And in their minds, they're completely and utterly free. They exercise that freedom to pay no heed to God or to the church or to the state of their souls. They exercise that freedom to have no thought for the future, the future life whatsoever. And they are utterly convinced in their mind that they are free. And yet, if you look at their life, they are utterly a slave to their passions, utterly a slave to wealth, utterly a slave to what's popular, utterly a slave to what the the media and television tell them they ought to believe or think. Complete and true slavery to oneself and to one's passions and sin. And for this, uh, you know, from this, Christ sets us free. Now, this slavery to sin also <clears throat> goes very deep because if you remember Luther's bondage of the will and how it was so thoroughly rejected by Erasmus and medieval Catholicism. You see that so much of this is already to be found a thousand years earlier in Chrysostom. And so Luther here shows himself to be the true Catholic theologian. And here in Chrysostom, where, where elsewhere in Chrysostom, um, it, it is true, in fact, that you may see, you may see um, some disagreements with Augustine and, and Luther on uh, the exact nature of the, uh, the fallen condition, original sin as such. In passages like these, I think you see Chrysostom at his best, diagnosing the true problem that afflicts man as being that of slavery to sin. And it is a slavery to sin. One cannot set him free from slavery to sin, but must be set free by Christ. All right, let's, uh, let's continue on. Please do interrupt me if you have any thoughts, any questions, see anything that I've uh, missed or misinterpreted. If you are not held in bondage to sin, Chrysostom writes, rejoice and have no fear. No one can harm you, since you are made of such stuff that no one can enslave. But if you are a slave of sin, I tell you that even if you are free 10,000 times over, it is of no advantage to you. Can you tell me what advantage a man has who, although not in bondage to another man, is in constant subjection to his own passions. At least men are merciful from time to time, but the passions, they won't be satisfied until they have destroyed you. And isn't that true? Isn't that true? The passions that ultimately take us away from God, you cannot get far enough away from Him, can you? They just keep going and going. And even if you, think of, if you think in terms of the commandments and you think of the fourth commandment and authority, the passion to be one's own authority cannot go far enough. So we have people living in a constant and continuous state of rebellion against whatever authority there may be. It's just even the authority that they rebelled in order to get, they're rebelling against that the next day. It just never ends. It drives you on and on. It can never be satisfied. And so too, anger, revenge, these thoughts, you can never get revenge enough. You, know, you, can, never, you can never satisfy. That's the nature of that, of that passion. It's, it's like Lamech who, you know, if you, kill, if you kill 
one of mine, I'm going to avenge him sevenfold, you know, that kind of thought. Just as boundless, and why stop at seven? Why not go further? And then, boy, sexual, sexual stuff too, particularly what the internet grants us with pornography. It's just on and on and pushes you ever deeper and deeper. So to the seventh commandment with greed. It's why we Americans have so much stuff that our stuff becomes a, a problem. We're constantly like that man who needs to build a bigger barn to hold more of his grain. It's like, okay, my, you know, my half a million dollar house is full. It's time for a million dollar house. Okay, that's full. It's time for a two million dollar house and so on. But it's endless. It's endless, you see. We all see the way these passions go. It's, you can never, you know, you can never... Eat, a dr- eat enough, drink enough, buy enough, have enough, be recognized enough, be praised enough. They're ceaseless in their demand. They're, they're slave masters that are never satisfied. And so, um, so beautifully, Paul, taking what we would consider commandments 9 and 10 against coveting in hand, really points to uh, these passions and their ceaseless pursuit of what we don't yet have as the ultimate proof for our sinful nature and for our concupiscence against God, from which only Christ can set us free. And new birth in the Holy Spirit with a new man and new impulses that starts to recognize these things and war against them, no matter how feebly, no matter how weakly, no matter how many times we fall, there is at least something new within us that is free and that is fighting and seeking to gain the upper hand. And that is precisely the new man in the spiritual warfare. All right, so here we have identified the passions as that which enslave us until they destroy us. Chrysostom continues, Are you another man's slave? Well, your master is also enslaved to you. He has to provide you with food, take care of your health, and provide you with clothing, shoes, and every other need. You have to take care not to offend your master, but his cares for your material welfare are greater. Does he recline at table while you stand and serve him? So what? The reverse is also true. Often while you are lying in bed sleeping sweetly, your master is not only standing, but keeping a most unpleasant vigil in a marketplace full of strife. And here I won't belabor the point, but this is an interesting paradoxical point too, is we always desire as human beings more and, uh, you know, higher and higher uh, position with more and more pay and benefits and glory and praise and honor. And then in receiving that, we also receive what? More and more responsibility and worry and care. So that, so that what we often refer to as the most powerful man on the face of the earth, the President of the United States, he's utterly responsible then not only for the country but for the world, as it is put. And that is, a, that is an endless slavery in and of itself, an impossible slavery in and of itself. So there's this paradox. There's this paradox. And I think, I think apropos of that is, is Jesus' comments that whoever would be greatest must be slave of all. That's not only attitudinal. There's probably something actually fundamentally written into the nature of creation that our Lord is pointing to. All right. 
Tell me, who suffered more? Joseph or his master's wife, enslaved to her evil desire. He wouldn't do what she wanted, but she was very obedient to the licentious mistress within her, who would not let her alone until she had completely dishonored herself. What human master, what savage tyrant could make such a command? Beg your slave, it hissed. Flatter this captive bought with your own silver. Even if he spurns you, continue to pursue him. If you nag him and he still won't consent, wait until he's alone and try to force him. Act as ridiculously as possible. How could anything be more dishonorable or shameful? And if none of this works, accuse him falsely and deceive your husband. Notice how shamefully servile these commands are, how cruel, harsh, and frenzied. What slave was ever governed by his master as that royal woman was ruled by her lust? She had even lost the ability to disobey. Joseph, on the other hand, was nothing like this. Everything he did brought him glory and honor. I will tell you about another man, enslaved to an even worse mistress, whose commands he dared not disobey. Consider Cain and his ruler, Lady Jealousy. She ordered him to murder his brother Abel, to lie to God, to grieve his father. He shamelessly did all these things, disobeying nothing. Don't be amazed that jealousy has such great power over one man. She has often destroyed entire nations. For example, the Midianite women used their beauty to deceitfully provoke the Jews to idolatry. And because of this, God commanded Israel to destroy their whole nation. This is the kind of slavery Paul is attacking when he says, do not become slaves of men. He means, don't listen to people who order you to do disgusting things. And don't be enslaved to your own wild impulses. <laughs> that is a good articulation of freedom. You have the external freedom of not being compelled by evil men who would have you do evil, and you have the internal freedom of not being compelled by your own evil lusts and desires. That's the freedom that Christ grants us. Obviously, when we fall into sins, he grants us full and complete forgiveness, won by his blood, and he sends forth his Holy Spirit and strengthens us so that we may rise and stand and walk in newness of life once more as free men in Christ fighting against these enslaving enemies. All right. This, this brings to an end this section on slaves and masters and the concept of Christian freedom versus slavery to sin, here treated in homily 19. And we really transition now to what is, uh, for Chrysostom, I think the final, the final section of his sermon, his homily 19, he's going to treat of the virgins, um, 1 Corinthians 7. Let me just get us to that section quick. We'll refresh our memory once more since we have a bit of time left. 
We'll refresh our memory on that section and then we'll get into Chrysostom's treatment of it. First Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21 or 25. Paul writes, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, those are key caveats, aren't they? And has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. All right, so this is the section, by and large, here that uh, Chrysostom is going to be treating throughout the remainder of his homily. Picking back up with Chrysostom on page 39. So, after he has raised their minds to higher things, he, Paul, continues his message. Now, concerning the virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give my opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. The next topic on his agenda is virginity. He has saved it with the hope that they have learned from his previous words to practice continence and can now advance to greater things. I have no command, he says, but he knows virginity to be a good thing. Why? 
For the same reason, continence is good. It is well for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek marriage. He is not contradicting what he said earlier about abstinence from sexual relations. His advice here is the same. Do not refuse one another except by agreement. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. There is no contradiction. Abstinence without mutual consent is forbidden. But if husband and wife agree to live together in continence, they are not seeking to break up their marriage and be free from each other. Okay, so here, here Paul, um, I mean, excuse me, John Chrysostom treating on Paul's words here in uh, chapter 7 and referring to, uh, you know, how marriage, how marriage is um, and how it relates in this instance so that what is an opportunity, what is an opportunity for Christians, um, for a husband and a wife, should they choose to live as brother and sister in the Lord, should they choose to live in continence, and this is a decision on both of their parts, and um, there, is, uh, there is nothing wrong with that whatsoever. The emphasis here of, of John Chrysostom is that abstinence without mutual consent is forbidden, but where abstinence may occur with mutual consent, um, this is fine. Thus he goes on to say, if husband and wife agree to live together in continence, okay, that means abstinence in the relationship, they are not seeking to break up their marriage and be free from each other. This is permissible and this is fine in the sight of the Lord. So this is, uh, I mean, this is something that we don't frequently talk about in, certainly not in my lifetime, in our present generation, that this is a, this is a viable alternative for Christian couples, providing that the Lord has both gived, gifted them with uh, continence, they're both willing, um, the marriage can be sustained on those grounds. Uh, Disney, of course, would tell us that this is not right, you know, The Bachelor and our culture would tell us that this is not right, that unless you are you know, tumbling madly in infatuation, not love, but infatuation that they call love. And uh, with that, all of the sexual passions expressed at all times. If, if you don't have that, then you're lacking, and you should divorce and go find someone who you have that with. C.S. Lewis, of course, brilliantly calls that foolishness. Foolishness. Yeah. All right. Simple, yeah. Yeah, sorry, I didn't articulate that. I was going... <laughs> It's going through his argument in my head, and I didn't say anything about it. Um, yeah, it's, it's foolishness precisely because a man ends up just chasing after, he's chasing after this idea of the perfect woman. And, and so he, he meets one, and she's not perfect, and he goes to look for another, and she's not perfect either, and so he goes to look for another. And, I mean, what kind of, what kind of person would think that? And so, so then you just simply reverse that and say, well, if, if it's not perfect, if it's this set of troubles that I have to deal with, marrying another would only bring, at best, a different set of troubles. Right? And so it's foolish to think you're going to solve your marital problems by getting married again. That's the, that's the profound aspect of the foolishness. You're just exchanging one set of troubles for another. And whereas you're leaving behind a wife and perhaps children in this instance, you're compounding your troubles. You're compounding your troubles. Well, continuing with John Chrysostom on page 40, this particular advice does not have the force of law. That is why he says, but if you marry, you do not sin. 
He then speaks of contemporary conditions. And that's a, that's a key to how you read uh, chapter 7, by the way. Paul is talking about first century conditions. That's why he says the quote-unquote present distress. So you ought not take chapter 7, that section we just read, 20, verse 25 and following, as some sort of general truth. It's true most specifically in the context in which Paul is speaking. I mean, if, uh, if persecution were absolutely imminent in this country, we could see the handwriting on the wall and we were all likely to be martyred very soon, it would be sound past world advice to say, hey, maybe, maybe this isn't the right time to be married may, and pursue that. Maybe this is the right time to remain single and pursue the Lord. Granted that you're not burning with lust. And that's essentially what Paul is saying here. So the present distress, how the appointed time has grown very short, and how those who marry will have affliction. Marriage entails many things, and he has summarized them both here by saying, you are bound. And in his advice about continence, when he says, the wife does not rule over her own body, but if you marry, you do not sin. He does not mean someone who has vowed to remain a virgin. She would be sinning if she married, because if, a, if widows incur condemnation for violating their pledge and seeking second marriage, this is a reference to 1 Timothy 5, 11 through 12, the judgment for virgins would be even greater. Well, this gets modified to some degree by the societal conditions around, of course. In fact, in the, in the 16th century, Lutherans, given their societal conditions, had many things to say about this and about you know, a young man or a young woman pledging themselves to virginity, that if they found that that supernatural gift was not given them, it is no sin for them to go back on that pledge. Because God, God gives the gift of, of chastity apart from marriage to only a very few. So I think that, that that statement from our Lutheran fathers and this statement here from Chrysostom nicely form two sides of the, of the Christian coin here because in the first century, things were much more financially entangled. And in many instances, those who had pledged themselves to be virgins or uh, widows who had pledged themselves to be widows of the church, you're really talking about something that in our eyes would look much more close to like what nuns are. Um, they've pledged themselves over to the church and, and given them to the financial support of the, so the church is financially supporting them and their well-being. And then it looks um, opportunistic, gossipy, not trustworthy, abusive of the church to simply use that for a time and then get married. So it looks different in the first century than it does in the 16th, certainly than it does in the 21st century. Anyway, I'm doing the best I can trying to tie in very complex world and very contradictory worldviews and thus different Christian teaching within those worldviews um, so that it makes sense for us today. But that's, that's challenging and maybe would be a class unto itself, although I don't know how fruitful. <clears throat> Chrysostom continues quoting Paul, Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. Ah, but they will also have pleasure, you say. But not for long, Paul replies, 
for the time has grown very short, verse 29. So again, look at how Paul is talking contextually, as opposed to making universal axioms. It is as if he were saying, we are directed to leave earthly cares behind us, but you are more deeply sinking into them. Even if marriage had no troubles, it would still be better for us to press forward toward the things yet to come. But since marriage does have its troubles, why be further burdened by it? Why struggle under such weight? Even after you take it, you have to use it as if it didn't exist. Since he says, let those who have wives live as though they had none. You know, this is a really interesting point because what is... What is the foundation of Chrysostom's thought here is that we as Christians, I mean, imagine yourself, imagine yourself being baptized as an infant and growing up in the church. How is it that we've been raised here in this country? How is it that we've been taught here in this country? We've been taught and raised to sort of look at like, well, this is what your future is. So you need to go find who you are and find your future identity. We sure hope church will be a part of that. So then you're to pursue what you love or pursue a vocation or pursue uh, some sort of career that will grant you money and freedom. And yes, we certainly hope the church will be a part of that. But look what, look what Chrysostom is doing here. Look what his assumption is. His assumption is you're baptized, you're raised in the church, you are already, in a sense, your identity and purpose are wed to the church. That is to press forward with the work of the Lord. Are we as parents training our kids in this way? I think not. And I, I count myself among them. This is one of the great challenges I think we have is to raise our children and identify them. You are the church and your entire life is to be identified with the church and with the mission of the church. Furthering, yes, your local congregation. Furthering the kingdom of God. Being wed to that. Such that that is the default. And if you don't burn with lust or passion, if you don't desire to be married, that is your goal and purpose. It's why you go out and find a job in the secular world. Not to get rich, but to support the work of the kingdom. I mean, this would revolutionize the church, wouldn't it? It Revolutionize the church. And then if you do find yourself, as the majority of Christians do and would in this hypothetical, uh, burning with lust and desires of marriage, as a remedy to that, you get married, and then what's the context and identity of your marriage? As a married couple, you are both united and identified with your primary purpose and objective of living as furthering the kingdom of God and the work of Christ in the place in which you dwell. So then everything else becomes tangential to that, superficial, to, like, like almost like a tree, and the trunk of the tree is your, is your relationship to the church, and you're pressing forward as Christians, the kingdom of God, and then your, your career, and your friendships, and your hobbies, and all the other aspects and components of your life are like the branches by which you branch out into the world and share the love of Christ. What a different identity. What a different identity. So this is one of the great challenges for us, is to try to recapture this from the rubble, from the stump. <laughs> Pray that God would send forth the shoot of Christ and 
and cause us to begin to teach our children that they may know it and they begin to teach their children generationally this shifts among us that we identify first and foremost with service of the Lord and with his church on earth and everything else is secondary to that. That is the main thing. What a torture we put on our youth where we tell them, go find yourself. Go discover yourself. You can be whatever you want to be. Go be it. And we sort of send them off into the world as like, like we're sending them off to some kind of Culver's or uh, you know, smorgasbord of food buffet line where they can go sample this and sample that and try to find who they are and what they are in this world. But in so doing, there's, this idea, there's already this implicit rejection of who you already are as a Christian, what you already are as your core value and purpose. Well, we can see how commercialism has affected and destroyed all of this much deeper than we ever imagined. We can glimpse that here in the words of, uh, and the assumptions, really, rather, of Chrysostom. All right, all right, we left off on page 41, and we are drawing quickly to a close. So after inserting these words about future things, he returns to the present. Notice that some of his advice concerns the spiritual life. The married woman is anxious about how to please her husband, while the unmarried woman or virgin is anxious about the Lord's affairs. How many unmarried women do we have in our congregation? How many unmarried men do we have in our congregation that are anxious about the affairs of the Lord? You see, you see the assumption that Chrysostom is working with, yeah. He continues, while at other times he argues on the grounds of this present life, I want you to be free from anxieties, but he leaves the choice to them. If he tried to force them to follow the way he has proven to be best, it would look as if he didn't trust his own argument. Instead, he tries to hold them in check with gentle persuasion. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Prior to marriage, during marriage, undivided devotion to the Lord. That's the goal. Now, the virgins should listen to what follows. Virginity does not simply mean sexual abstinence. She who is anxious about worldly affairs is not really a virgin. In fact, he says that this is the chief difference between a wife and a virgin. He doesn't mention marriage or abstinence, but attachment as opposed to detachment from worldly cares. Sex is not evil, but it is a hindrance to someone who desires to devote all their strength to a life of prayer. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his virgin, etc., verses 36 through 40, these words refer to a man and a woman living in sexual continence as brother and sister. He approves of this, but also says it is no sin if they marry. He concludes the passage by speaking of second marriage after the death of one spouse. He even allows this, but says that it must be in the Lord. In the Lord means with prudence and decency. 
we must always pursue these virtues, for without them we will never see God. No one should accuse me of negligently hurrying through Paul's words about virginity. I have written a whole book about this subject in which I tried to examine accurately every aspect of virginity. It would be a waste of words to bring this topic up again. I refer you to this book if you want a more detailed discussion, and we'll close with one final statement. We must strive for self-control. St. Paul tells us to seek peace and the sanctification without which it is impossible to see the Lord. So whether we presently live in virginity, in our first marriage, or in our second, let us pursue holiness that we may be counted worthy to see him and to attain the kingdom of heaven through the grace and love for mankind of our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom be glory, dominion, and honor with the Father and the Holy Spirit now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Well, perhaps the final point to draw out from this homily of Chrysostom whether we presently live in virginity in our first marriage or in our second, and I can already hear voices objecting, voices I love very much and care very much about objecting and saying, well, what about singles? What about divorcees? Um, what about widows, etc.? But that would, be to miss, that would be to miss Chrysostom's point. We are, biblically speaking, to live our lives in virginity or in marriage. That's it. So if you're divorced and you're not remarried, you're living in virginity. If you're remarried, you're living in marriage. If you're uh, single, you're living in virginity. If you're married, you're living as one who's married. Those are the two states. So he's actually left nothing out. He's actually left nothing out. Um, We are either living as Christians, we are living as virgins, or we are living as the married. And those are two different vocations. And if you're single, if you're living as a virgin, again, did you notice what what he said? This this has nothing to do with sexuality or sexual experience. Did you notice that? He says sex isn't evil, and nor does it constitute virginity as such. Virginity is rather your state of being before the Lord. So if you're not married then you are a virgin, which means you are devoted to the Lord alone. If you're married, you're devoted to the Lord and your spouse. You see, so there really are, in this way of looking at things, only two different vocations. And whether you're a Christian, whether, again, whether you're single or married or divorced or married for your third time or whatever the case may be, as these words hit you today, you need to realize, first and foremost, all our sins are blotted out by the blood of Christ. He alone is the perfect husband, the perfect bride. And... The church, the perfect vir- the bridegroom, I should say, the church, the perfect bride, um, the virgin mother, and uh, that alone is is perfection when it comes to virginity and marriage. And so, with our sins forgiven, though we're free to live in either one of these two states: virginity, um, where we are devoted to the Lord, or marriage, where we are devoted to the Lord and to our spouse. Beautiful simple, wonderfully refreshing, and wonderfully free for all. All right, next week, let's pick up on homily 20 from uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. That'll be the text. The Lord be with you.